This week on the Back Table Podcast. People, I mean, I think most people are getting trained in, in UFIs, um, but I, I do believe it, it's a very attainable procedure for like any young IR docs who, who maybe don't have a whole lot of experience with it. I mean, selecting um, the uterine arteries is one of the easier things that we do. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's podcast with Backtable, your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and share cases, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. As a reminder to our listeners, our app is free to download on the iTunes store or you can find us at backtable.com. This is Mike DeBarraza returning as your host. Today I'm thrilled to welcome Keith Pereira and Chris Beck to discuss their experiences and approach to uterine fibroid or uterine artery embolization. Uh, we'll start with some uh, introductions. Myself, I just finished my IR fellowship at Penn, where we did a lot of UFEs, both transdermal and transradial. Now three weeks into a private practice gig in Nashville, I'm yet to see a single UFE consult, which I'm hoping to change. Uh, moving on to Chris, could you please tell us about your background and the role UFE plays in your clinical practice? Sure. Um, and first, uh, thanks, Michael, for having me on the uh, podcast. So my name's Chris Beck. I've been on the podcast a couple of times. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist in New Orleans. And uh, so uh, originally uh, when I joined my practice, um, we were doing, I don't know, maybe five or six uh, uterine fibroid immobilizations per year. And it, it was a part of the practice I was very interested in growing. And it, it's, come a, it's, it's come a long way. I mean, I think we have a, a ways uh, to go. And, you know, I was hoping to solicit some of the vi- uh, advice from Keith, but now we do about, um, I don't know, maybe one uh, UC or maybe, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe one UC every two weeks or maybe one UC every week. Um, so, you know, we've picked up the volume, but, you know, I certainly think there's room for growth. Okay. Uh, so now moving uh, on to hi. Dr. Pereira. Can yeah, you, hi, Mike. Uh, you've managed to become a well-respected yes. and outspoken advocate for this procedure in our community. Uh, could you share with us how you got there and, and why this has come to represent such a large part of your practice? Yes. Uh, thanks, Michael. This is this is an awesome platform. I've been hearing a lot of other talks on this, and this has been really nice. Um, getting back to, yeah. So, you know, I did my fellowship a couple of years ago, I uh, you know, seven, eight years ago in uh, in New York, and I was in, in the Bronx where I started doing uh, uterine fiber embolizations. And, uh, you know, I was... Uh, uh, I was I was amazed because you know back in medical school we did not hear about UFE. Uh, no medical student hears about UFE. Uh, doing your residency, you sort of hear about it, and then you know when you start doing these cases, you're like, oh my gosh, what the hell is going on? Like you know, uh, UFE is <laughs> an in in outpatient simple procedure it takes about forty five minutes to an hour. Uh, patient goes home the same day. What is the comparison to hysterectomy? So it was pretty impressive, and you know. You know, being in the being in the Bronx, in New York, that we had a fair amount of uh, uh, patients who came for UFE, and you know, subsequently I, I moved to Miami and I didn't see any UFEs, and I was like, oh, this is this is weird. In New York, so many uh, UFEs, and Miami, no UFEs, and you know, we spoke to a lot of people around, and you know, there was a resistance from other physicians to send us patients and stuff. And, uh, yeah, so I sort of thought it was a regional thing where, you know, some places there is a lot of UFE, some places there's not. And then I moved to St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, about a year and a half a year ago. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I think uh, I've really been pushing for a, a, a robust UFE practice here. And, in, you know, we have a long way to go, but things have moved uh, significantly from a long time. Uh, you know, this practice didn't do 
any UFEs a couple of years ago. We're doing a significant amount now. It's growing every month. So it's been it's been a long way. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, we've we come a long way and there's a long way to go. Uh, remember, there are 400,000 hysterectomies for UA, for fibroids every year in the U.S. Okay, so there's a lot, a lot of patients out there who need UFEs, a lot of patients. Yeah. That's incredible. That's even even larger than the numbers I found. I found 180,000 a year or 30% of hysterectomies in the United States are, are performed for fibroids. So in your opinion, generally, what proportion of those do you think are better suited for UFE? Well, I, the, 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 every, every patient is suitable for UFE, right? Uh, every, you know, a patient who's not a surgical candidate, a patient who's a surgical candidate, every patient is suitable for UFE. Now, which are the patients we sort of, uh, you know, we don't consider them to an ideal candidate are the ones who are younger and who may want to get pregnant. Uh, there's some evidence, but this is back in 2008. There's a nice paper out of uh, out of Europe, which has reported a high incidence of uh, infertility, a high incidence of early early loss of pregnancies and stuff with UFE. Um, that being said, uh, at that time, the American College of Gynecology uh, came out with a statement saying that it may not be the preferred uh, treatment indication for people who want. Uh, to be to get pregnant, young women who want to get pregnant. Things have come a long way. There have been a lot of papers coming out now. Uh, there's a least recent paper come out of uh, Dr. Fisco in Portugal, which shows you know things are not the way we thought it was ten years ago. There are various new techniques that can be used. Uh, you know, partial partial embolization versus complete embolization. Uh, so there are a lot of techniques that can help to retain pregnancy. So I think it's it's something that will evolve over the next few years uh, about the pregnancy part of it. Uh, the rest of it, I I don't. There is almost no contraindication. Again, there is a myth that pedunculated fibroids uh, are a contraindication. You know, yes, it is a relative contraindication, but not an absolute one. Again, submucosal fibroids, which are along the inner inner side, again contraindication. I don't. I don't think it's a contraindication as long as you speak to Jiva and, and the patient, and she knows that you know this fibroid could slough out, uh, and they're aware of it. I think it's not a contraindication anymore. So, okay. essentially, uh, there's no contraindication right now. Relative in the, relative relative contraindication is a young woman who comes who may want to get pregnant. Okay. So it, it sounds like your practice regarding UFEs has really evolved in recent years. But you know, as for all of this, there's plenty of room to grow. Uh, as mm-hmm. of now, where do the majority of your patients come from? Uh, and if you could specifically touch on your relationship with OBGYN. OBGYN has been, uh, it's been difficult, you know, it, it has been difficult. And I think as vascular interventional radiologists, we have to move beyond beyond thinking of somebody is going to refer a patient to us. I think that we have, we, we have crossed that, that phase of our, of, our, of our specialty. We have to think of ourselves being almost like a primary specialty. We have to be, we have to be the physicians. We have to be the primary care physicians to this, to this, to these patients. So yes, we have to have GYN. They're our colleagues. They're they're good to us. You know, we have to have them on board. Uh, I absolutely agree. Uh, uh, you know, we have grand grand rounds for them. We talk to them about this. We you know we do a lot of stuff to educate a lot of GYNs about this alternative option. But I think, as I said, we have to move on. We have to touch the patient. We have to. Uh, speak to the patient directly, communicate directly, uh, tell them about the advantages, about the disadvantages, why is it different from hysterectomy. And, you know, 
patients should know that this is a treatment option and it is a very uh, time-proven uh, and time-tested uh, treatment option for uh, uterine fibroids. Okay. Chris, what about you? What's your relationship like with OBGYN? So um, I, we, have, we have a pretty good relationship with the OBGYN doc. So there's um, LSU um, Hospital, which uh, operates a lot of the uh, community hospital that uh, I work at. And then there's some community uh, private practice OBGYN. And, um, you know, originally it just took um, me getting out there and meeting some of the uh, OBGYN docs and, and letting them know that we did uh, UFEs for a long time. I, I think they were interested in having that that option for some of their patients to see an interventional radiologist and uh, really? My group, for whatever reason, they, they just didn't, they just weren't all that interested in growing that part of the practice. So, you know, for me, almost like uh, uh, getting into my practice, you know, one of the one of the small hurdles to jump over was just to introduce myself and let them know that I did the procedure. Um, and then uh, another thing that I did to uh, build the practice, uh, we deliver a lot of babies uh, where I'm from, and we had a handful of cases. They kind of came in like a small rash of um, uh, postpartum hemorrhage. And so, you know, I did a uterine artery embolization, setting up, you know, postpartum hemorrhage, not exactly fibroid embolization. And um, when the OB-JOAN, you know, they always come and, and they'll thank you afterwards and you're, you know, helping them out in, in a jam. And I'll say, you know what, um, you know, this is a great case, happy to help you out. But now you owe me a couple of fibroid patients. And, and then we would kind of have a quick <laughs> laugh about it. And I'm like, but seriously, you do. That's, that's pretty um, cool. But, nice. but yeah, but very much um, our relationship with OBGYN, it, it's been, it's been more collaborative than, than competitive. Um, and, but, but I kind of agree with Keith. I, I think we've moved past the point where, you know, we just have, we're sitting back and, and waiting for an OBGYN to counsel the patient and then tell them, Hey, I think you're a better candidate for uh, fibroid embolization. Um, I, I, I see a lot more practices and even some guys in New Orleans that, you know, direct referrals from, um, either primary care physicians or, or some patients self-refer. I think if mm -hmm. you do a good job of, of marketing yourself, um, you know, nothing, nothing cheesy, but, you know, just make yourself available mm -hmm. either on the internet and then SIR has kind of a mechanism uh, for that, that I think patients will, will try and get in touch with you. Um, but, you know, but to answer the question, uh, ultimately, we kind of have a collaborative uh, approach with OBGYN and um, they're sending me some good cases. I mean, I think there's some untapped uh, resources and some reluctant um, refers, but, you know, I still intend on working on them. And, you know, I, I think that we offer a good procedure and there are a lot of candidates who, or I think there are a lot of patients who bring it up themselves to their OBGYN and then that prompts mm -hmm. a referral. Well, Chris, that's an interesting, really uh, that's an interesting point he raised, you know, I think uh, besides getting the self-referrals, it's important to educate people to speak to the GYNs about this treatment option, just bring it up. Mm -hmm. Because the moment the moment they bring this up, uh, a lot of GYNs are like, you know, and I, I've seen that. You know, they say, "Oh, yeah, you want this treatment? Yeah, but you know, I'll send a refer to a, to my closest vascular IR guy." So I think that's important. Know your treatment options, and SIR has been telling everybody, you know, educating, trying to educate people. Know your treatment options. That's the important point. That's a good point, Chris. Yeah. Uh, and Chris, you brought up another important point about the self referrals. Uh, are either of you involved with any kind of marketing outside of, you know, speaking to, to your doctors, like any kind of advertising or anything like that? Keith, do you want to take that one? Sure. Yes. Um, yeah, we have been, uh, we have been doing a lot of advertising. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm working in university hospital. It's difficult to get the finances 
to to advertise, uh, you know, because these ads are expensive and everything. Uh, but yes, you know, uh, recently one of our marketing guys said we've got an opportunity of an ad in a in a in a local daily. Uh, we have never done it before. Do you want to try UFE? And yes, it worked. We got three referrals from just one small ad, and this is like two three weeks ago. So it's it's not uh, it's it's not unusual. I think ads is very important. Uh, more than that, I think a lot of uh, awareness, uh, you know, using social media. I think social media is excellent. Um, uh, okay. I, I did a I did a small f- Facebook live interview for social media. There were there were like five thousand views and a lot of impressions on it. So I think that's one thing. And uh, you know, coming on coming on your on your on your on your on your TV, your, your local channels. You know, they're always interested in something that affects society. Um, you know, so something that is so prevalent, 80% of women have fibroids, 50 to 80% women. That's a high number. Uh, this is something that you your market, you should talk to your marketing team and tell them to talk to the media and tell them that this is something that people need to know about. We, we should not promote the procedure only. We should promote awareness of the people about this disease condition. And that's how people become aware of the procedure for it. So, you know, and I think it's it's a social cause, you know. We are physicians. Uh, we are just not proceduralists. We are physicians. We should make people aware of this disease condition and there are options available for it. So, yeah, I think uh, social social media, uh, TV media and, you know, newspapers, I think very effective, very effective. And that's the way to go. That's the way to go. These, uh, you know, as you know, these women are young. This is, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not, uh, your target population is not 65-year-olds. Your target population is 35 to 50. These are the women who go to the internet, who read newspapers, who look, look at TV. So these are people who want to know options. Uh, easy population to target, really easy. He, he does a good point in bringing up like the patient population of, of you know, your, your fibroid uh, embolization patients. I mean, they're 35 to 50, 90 percent. Uh, I mean, maybe even I'd say virtually all the patients that I see have have Googled mm-hmm. the procedure, know something about the procedure, yes. and, and for the most Dr. part Google. are pretty well informed on, on their options. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so I, I think they, that makes them uh, in, uh, kind of a good uh, patient population to target, like, like Keith said, with either traditional media like television, radio, or, or newspaper, um, social media. And, you know, a lot of times like your hospital will have like a, a mechanism to, to help you along with that. Uh, I know in, in my practice, you know, uh, we're a private practice group that works, you know, contracts out with the hospital. So, you know, there's nothing really in our practice budget to account for marketing. But there is there is someone at the hospital who's more than happy to, like, help get your name out. Uh, and another avenue okay. uh, to think about with, with marketing is, um, like, your like whatever reps you might use for the, the devices that you use, they'll, they'll help you put together a little something um, like a little brochure or something that you can hand out for your patients. Absolutely. That's that's a very good point. Unfortunately, I cannot do it because of, you know, the university has its own rules, but that sure. is a great sure. way of great way of promoting your practice through reps who, who, who sell this, you know, these devices. Yes, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Chris, you, you answered the question I was going to ask, which is, you know, how you would recommend somebody go about trying to build referrals. But say, you know, we're going with uh, the rep system, contacting a rep to help him or her, I mean, to have him or her help you get, uh, a few patients in the door. What you know? What kind of rep are you targeting? Is, is it the embolic rep? Is you know the catheters? Is it you know from your radial sheet? Like, who are you going to? Well, yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I think like um, uh, for fibroid embolization, I, I usually go to the embolic rep. 
Um, and you know, that, that's just one way to go. Like I, I wouldn't bank on like your rep really like going the extra mile for you in the end, it's going to be on you to kind of kind of push this agenda as far as like building up your practice. But I just think that sometimes, I mean, maybe not in Keith's practice or if you're at a university setting, they have some, some rules against it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in my instance, um, the reps, I mean, it's kind of a free for all, like, uh, you know, you can have the reps and, and they'll help you put together a dinner or a talk or a lecture yeah. for either physicians. Yeah. I see. Um, yeah. One of, one of my partners who's over in Lafayette, which is a, a, a practice. It's a couple away. I mean, we cover a lot of different places. Um, but he was telling me um, back in his day, he went to, he went to the public library and, and one of the reps <laughs> helped him put together like a little talk and like they invited some people to the community. And he said mm-hmm. he got, he got like 10 referrals from that. And of those mm-hmm. referrals, maybe five went on to embolization. I mean, you know, it's just mm-hmm. kind of thinking a little bit outside the box when you're just yes. trying to get started and getting the first couple patients in the door. Yep, absolutely. Now, are you both seeing all of your patients beforehand in clinic? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, clinic is the most important thing, the most important thing. For any vascular IR practice, I, I think if anybody is not having clinic right now, you're bound to fail. Uh, I think it's an absolute essential. Uh, see the patient in clinic, and if required for the procedure, you know, uh, set up for the procedure, see the patient and follow up uh, three months. And then uh, after three months, I usually go to, a, you know, sometimes we do an email type of thing. So our, our vascular our coordinator is uh, emailing them for the UFS QL scores so as to know how they're doing. Uh, you know, some of these patients do so well, they never see you again. Never seeing you again may be a good thing because they really do well. <laughs> so follow-up, routine follow-up is difficult sometimes with them. But, you know, I think, uh, yeah. That's how, that's how we go. I think clinic is so, so essential. Um, I, I totally agree with Keith. Although I was thinking how awkward it would be if I said that I didn't see any of my patients in clinic um, after Keith <laughs> just told us how essential it is. But I totally agree. I think that um, I see all these patients in clinic. And, and actually, I don't even have dedicated clinic time. But there is usually some slow um, slow parts of the day that I know I can get away with seeing patients, and so um, I'll schedule I'll schedule those patients on on varying days and uh, see them towards the afternoon. But I see everyone pre-op, um, and you know at that time I'll I'll actually put in like a full H and P note. I think it's a good idea uh, whenever you're I mean early on and even when you're a little bit deeper into your practice, I take that I take that clinic note. And one of the first questions I ask my patients is, tell me every doctor that you have. And they, you know, tell me they have a PCP, they have a OBGYN, and they, you know, maybe they have a neurologist or, or, or whatever. One, it gives you some insight as to what's going on with them. But also, mm-hmm. I see every one of those doctors on my, on my clinic note and let them know, you know, what I'm doing, when the patient's scheduled. Wow. One, and the, I mean, yeah, and, and one, it keeps the OBGYNs in the loop, and I, and I think they appreciate that. And two, mm-hmm. you never know. Like, you send it to a, a PCP, and they read that, and they they might mm-hmm. just think about fibroid embolization when otherwise they might not have. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I don't know if you guys know, but if you use Epic, you can get all you can get any physician almost everywhere in the whole country on your Epic. Do you guys knew that? Uh, I only use Epic. <laughs> I, I use only use Epic at uh, one of the hospitals, and um, uh, and I had no idea you uh-huh. could do that. <laughs> Yeah, you can copy any physician. Just put his last name out, and you can route it to him. It's pretty much, I just discovered this three weeks ago, so I'm really excited about it. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, 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 I certainly like, don't have that. 
Um, really nice. Uh, so I wanted to take this opportunity to switch gears a little bit and focus on some of the technical points of the procedure. And uh, so I was just going to ask you to go through a straightforward case, starting with okay. how you uh, select your access site, you know, radial versus femoral, and then just take us through a case, you know, the, the catheters, the wires you use, the embolics right. you use, and what your endpoint is. Okay. So, uh, you know, as, as I said, clinic, you know, in clinic, we have start, now started checking patients' radial. You know, we have got an ultrasound in clinic. We start checking the radial see the diameters, do a barbo. So, you know, you're sort of set up for a radial procedure. Uh, so that, you know, ahead of time, the techs, when the patient comes to the procedure, know how to set the room up and everything, you know, have the radial cocktail and everything ready. So that's done in clinic. And we put on a clinic note, uh, radial, uh, this patient appears suitable for uh, radial access. So that makes things easier. And is that, depend, is that based on uh, pre-procedure testing, like a barbo test, or is it you know, yeah. height yeah. way factor it's, in that? Do you have a height um, uh, height factor, not really, because you know I, I think now we have we have decent catheter sizes, and I'll, and I'll you know I can I can touch on that uh, in a little while. But yeah, I, I don't think height is any more a factor. I think it's barbo and the size again. Um, we have come down from you know we used to start at two millimeters in the beginning. Now it's come down to one point six. Below one point six is tough, but then there's always an ulna artery. So I don't think there's there's almost no chance of you not being able to do a procedure unless. You know, she's had a procedure before. Or something, do you accept Barbo A, B, and C for radio yes. interventions? Correct, okay. A, B, and C. Correct. Yeah, I've even, you know, just to prevent confusion in the room, I sometimes, you know, switch from I couldn't get radial access, for example, just go to brachial and finish the procedure, rather than just move on the other side. So, I mean, that's a that's a different uh, conversation, but uh, yeah, so that's that's done in clinic, and you know, of course, we'll review the MRI, uh, and I think. The two things was to, uh, if they don't have an MR, then get an MR. Uh, the other thing was endometrial biopsy. Uh, that was sort of the gold, you know, everybody had to get an endometrial biopsy. Uh, we still try to get it. Uh, if the patient has never seen a, seen a GYN or, you know, has had an endometrial biopsy in the past, and then we may skip it. But as far as possible, we try to get these two things, MRI and endometrial biopsy. Uh, may move on to just uh, 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 an ultrasound. You know, I think um, I'm very comfortable with ultrasound. Uh, if I can do an ultrasound in my clinic, uh, I may not need an MR. You know, it's it's MR is it's, it gives a lot of information. As radiologists, we want imaging, uh, but as clinicians, you know, clinicians don't get an MR for everything. Um, and there have been studies which have shown that you know MR is all uh, you know the cost of UFE versus hysterectomy is almost similar, and the, the similarity is because the cost of MR is added to the UFE. So, I don't know. I think down the line, as we get more comfortable with this, we will start, uh, you know, skipping the MR part of it. But as of now, yeah, we we, we try to do MRs and endometrial biopsy for most of our patients. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, yep. So, so back yep, to me and my fibroid uterus. Uh, I've got a beautiful radial artery. Uh, can you walk me through my procedure? You know, just from the access all the way to uh, embolization. Uh, well, so patient comes to, comes on the day of the cl- clinic, uh, gets set up for the radial artery. Uh, we stand on the left side of the room with the hands extended outside. Uh, you know, the people have been using Emla cream on the hands for vasodilatation. I've not used it. I don't know. I don't know the effect. Uh, but, you know, basically get access. Uh, now, access-wise, uh, I think radial access, everybody's spoken about, you, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty easy, straightforward. You do a few of it and you know, you know, and you know how easy it is. Uh, the radial cocktail is pretty important. Uh, you know, Verapamil 2.5, Nitro 300, and Heparin 3000. 
Um, the Terumo slender sheath 454/5 French is golden. Is golden. Uh, never ever failed me. You know, it just slides in as long as you get good access with ultrasound. It just slides in. So it's it's amazing. It's really amazing. Um, so once you get access, uh, we use uh, we use the uh, you know initially I started using uh, you know the four French 120 uh, Terumo glide cat. A uh, great catheter, you know, got a, got a big inner lumen, but sometimes it gets a little. Uh, it, it doesn't have. It doesn't. Uh, you know, it gets a little flimsy. It's it, it it's it's not a strong catheter. So I've tend to moved on to uh, the word catheter, which is you know, Merit has got a nice five French word catheter, which is amazing. You know, you can you almost go wireless uh, into both the right and left internal iliacs, and then into the uterines uh, without even a wire. Uh, you know, as standard teaching goes, if you want to get into the right into the iliac, if you do contralateral oblique and vice versa. Uh, and then uh, once we get into the uterine uh, into the uterine artery uh, with the bigger catheter, with a five French catheter, uh, I, I, I've always used a prograde. I know in a lot of outpatient practices, you know, you want to save on a little bit of uh, money because of the catheter. But, you know, I, I think we need to get beyond that horizontal segment of the uterine artery just to prevent any embolization in the cervicovaginal branches, especially younger patients, you know, they lose sensations and, you know, uh, sexual sex, sexual function can be affected in, 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 in the long term. Um, so get beyond the, get beyond the horizontal branch. And then, you know, at that point of time, do an angiogram so far, no angiograms, you know, uh, and then do an angiogram and then embolize with, uh, with particles uh, again, five to seven hundred is the standard. To you start with five to seven hundred. Try not to go below because you know you have a uh, ovarian artery coming out of there, uh, and then you know you can go up to seven to nine hundred uh, just to go to go to sort of uh, stasis, but not complete stasis. You know, uh, just stop short of that. I've seen a lot of people with pain when you have go to complete stasis, and it's really not it's really not needed to go to complete stasis. So you know. Sort of prior to complete. Now, stasis. what about your embolic agent? Are you using embospheres or something different? Um, embospheres for now, yes. Uh, I, I've used the embospheres. You know, some hospitals, you know, we, we cover a few hospitals where we, we, may, we may have to use PVA particles. Uh, yeah, not as comfortable with PA, PVA as embolic particles, which is embospheres, yes. Now, one more question on this Does your endpoint change if you're treating for adenomyosis or postpartum bleeding? Uh, yes, yes. Postpartum bleeding, you would definitely be more aggressive. You would want complete stasis for sure. And then probably even put gel form on the way out a little bit, you know, sort of pack it up mm-hmm. with gel form. Uh, yeah, yeah, possible. Adenomyosis, you'd go with smaller particles, yes. Um, one to 300 sometimes, you know, if you if you really need to get that adenomyosis out. But um, yeah. Chris, what about you? Uh, can you walk me through your approach, what you use and, and how you do this? Sure, sure. Um so, uh, you know, uh, bypassing all the, uh, the pre-op stuff. So, uh, day of the procedure, um, uh, patients in the, in the cath lab, I, I do everyone, uh, femoral access. Um, I, I'm interested in doing some radial cases and every, every time I say that I'm going to do it, um, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's either a chicken out or, or I just, you know, I know the feeling, my friend. <laughs> What's that? I know the feeling. Don't, don't cut me out again. Don't cut me out of this. It's going to change your practice. Oh my gosh. 
Dude, you cannot imagine. <laughs> I, I hear. I mean, it, it's not as though it's not don't, as though we. Did, I didn't train on on radial access. It's it's just always something like we don't do have it. the radial sheets or or like you know I don't have a slave monitor. So if I want to go radial, I kind of got to look over my shoulder or or bring the the arm by down by the side and then work left handed. Like, I got a hundred excuses, but anyway, so I go femoral access, um, uh, just a standard five print sheath. Um, and when, once I'm in, uh, I go up and over with a C2 glide, uh, select the hypogastric and then, you know, hypogastric, uh, usually, you know, depending on where I am, I may negotiate the, the five French Cobra a little bit closer. I never, I never get into the, um, the uterine with the, uh, the base catheter. Um, I, I usually just park it right outside or, you know, depending on how close I feel like getting um, and then I use a renegade micro catheter with fathom wire, uh, to get into the uterine. And, and yeah, this is, a, this is a good point to talk about it. If, if people, I mean, I think most people are getting trained in, in UFIs. Um, but I, I do believe it's, it's a very attainable procedure for like any young IR docs who, who maybe don't have a whole lot of experience with it. I mean, selecting, um, the uterine arteries is one of the easier things that we do. Um, but anyway, so, so once I'm in with the micro, I usually get in the horizontal branch of the, um, uh, of the uterine and then I do a run. I usually, I mean, one of the, the tips I was taught by one of the guys who taught me how to do this was I put it on one frame per second. And so I'm not blasting them with radiation. And then I carry my run out to the venous phase. And, you know, because you, you see the artery phase, I mean, you can do the artery phase on just like a blush of contrast. Um, but what I'm looking for, uh, is any potential underlying ABM. And then once I feel comfortable with the run, you know, I'm kind of analyzing like how much of the, the fibro or how much of the uterus am I seeing? I'll embolize with five to seven, um, uh, embospheres. And I, I like Keith, you know, you start with five to sevens and you make up to seven to nine. And I use substasis also. I, I think a lot of people, I mean, even me early on, um, you over embolize. I don't know why you just feel like you got to. And, um, you know, what I do is I usually, you know, kind of a rule of thumb is, you know, five heartbeats, you know, the contrast won't clear out, but you can kind of see it moving a little bit. And then, you know, one thing you don't have to worry about radial, but I have to worry about is, is getting into the ipsilateral side. And so I'll do a Waltman loop uh, uh, with the same C2 glide and then get into the hypogastric and then subselect all over with the same micro. Mm -hmm. So you do the Waltman loop with the C2 glide, huh? What's that? You do the Waltman loop with the C2 glide? Yeah, I do it with the C2 glide. It, it makes it a little bit harder uh, with the C2 glide. Um, mm -hmm. And if I'm having any trouble, I, I can just uh, I can use another catheter. But usually Does I can get it with the C2 glide just so I can stay in the same catheter. Does it ever get We actually did it a different way at Penn for the ones that we did do radial. We would take just uh, a long Berenstein and, and preload it with the 2 Tevdak suture get it up into the abdominal aorta, and basically uh, it's like the you know, suture reforming technique you use for a Simmons. You do uh -huh. that, but you just basically keep going to get this huge loop uh, uh -huh. that just goes all the way up into the abdominal aorta, and then you just pull it down to each side. It's actually very easy, much easier, nice. I think, to, to select the ipsilateral that way. Um, nice, nice. So to move on a little bit, um, when and or if, or, you know, do you guys go out and look for the ovarian arteries? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, to, to finish up my procedure, I almost always uh, do a run in aorta to uh, look for like any ovarian collaterals. Hmm. Uh, no, I, no uh, I don't know. I, I, I think I should be doing it. 
uh, if it is a large uterus and, you know, you have some suspicion. Like, for example, you know, I, I like Chris's idea of doing this one frame per second. I think I should do that. That saves radiation. That's a very nice thing. I'm going to, I'm going to take that up. Uh, but if you do All a right. long run, if you do a long run and you don't see a blush, in, you know, you see, a, you see a perfusion defect somewhere, then you know that, you know, there's something going on with some other artery. But uh, beyond that, no, I don't do that extra run. Uh, I guess just laziness, but you know, maybe I should be doing it. For what it's worth, I mean, I, I think most of the time, if, if you're paying attention to your runs, you can tell that there there's something not perfusion, uh, perfusing, yeah. which would prompt you to, to yeah. do the aortic run. Um, it's out of laziness that, you know, sometimes <laughs> I'm not looking as closely as I should that I do the aortic run. And right. I would say, um, out of all the aortic runs I do, it's about one in twenty that I'll that I'll pursue anything off that. Um, oh, but that's that's a that's a good that's a good number. One in twenty is a good number. Yeah, it, yeah. If, yeah it, you know, it's it's five so percent like it, failure. Kind of, it's five percent failure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good number. Keith, I'm sure you remember the the case I shared with you with that massive uh, ovarian from the mental artery. Uh, yeah, certainly don't see that every day, but. Yes, so say we're, yes. you know, we're done, we're embolizing. What do you both use as your preferred tool or technique for hemostasis? Well, it sounds like Keith is radial, so you use TR band, right? Yeah, TR band, TR band, yeah. 30, 30 minutes TR band, 35 minutes out. The Vasostat. Uh, oh, we use that again for radial intervention, so that was, it was awesome. Uh, you know, it, it maintains a little bit of flow in the artery, you know, so you're not totally occlusive. It's just enough okay. to, um, you know, for hemostasis. What about you, Chris? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I, I close everyone with a, uh, a minx. And, you know, what I like about the minx that we, we actually done a whole podcast on it is that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's all uh, extravascular closure and, you know, it, it's fairly simple to deploy. So I close everyone with the minx. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Chris, you, you helped me out in prepping for this podcast and a question that you had posted on SR Connect about procedural meds, pre, post, and intra-procedural meds. Uh, so, you know, I'd like to focus on that for a minute, but, but first I'd like to ask you guys, are either of you uh, doing hypogastric nerve blocks? Yeah, I am. And, yeah, I am. And I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, superior hypogastric nerve blocks, yeah. And, why? you know, I... Why? Because the thing is, I, I, I stumbled upon this before. It's sort of... I, it, 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 superior hypogastric nerve block, at last, at the SR this year was much spoken about. And truthfully, I had not heard from SIR before. We do a fair amount of interventional pain uh, pain management, you know, for, you know, spine and nerve blocks and celiac blocks and superior hypogastric nerve blocks. So we, we had, I had a, quite a few reference for superior hypogastric nerve block for GYN pain. So, you know, terminal cancer and stuff where, you know, I did this injection and then I did an alcohol ablation and it worked so well. So, you know, got a couple of patients and then I was doing a UFE one day and I was like, hey, you know what, maybe it will work for this. And then I looked up, there was some article back in 2004, was it, from Europe, which said it was safe. So I was like, oh, it's safe. So wonderful. So let me try it. And then it worked. And <laughs> I don't know, I, I really haven't looked back, man. It's, it is it is amazing. I know are, you people doing are, using, are you doing them using bony landmarks or do you use your angiogram? Also, at the end of the procedure, what I do is I pull back that catheter into the abdominal aorta and do a, do like a roadmap, you know, just with 5cc of contrast, like just inject 5cc, do a roadmap. So use that roadmap uh, and then angle the II to make the five vertebrae like end on. And then, yeah, just, just go blind, man. Just just don't look at what you're going. Just go blind and hit that ball. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> Chris, are you doing these? Uh, you know, I, I trained uh, one of my one of my attendings, uh, Keith Horton, uh, taught me how to do um, the superior hypogastric nerve blocks. But, nice. but I don't. Uh, it sounds like Keith is probably getting his patients out same day. Um, mm-hmm. And if that were the case, I would I would I would definitely add that into my my regimen. But um, I almost keep everyone overnight uh, for uh, uh, pain control and antiemetics. Um, oh, you and do, so, huh? Yeah, I do. Oh, um, interesting. I, I I found the strain a lot, which I'm 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 actually surprised about. You know, people keeping them overnight. I don't know. I, you know, back superior hypogastric nerve block helps a lot. Like it is, it is amazing. I think everybody should start doing it. Um, you know, we are trying to get some prospective. We're trying to start a, to do a small clinical trial. You know, using the superior hypogastric nerve block. Uh, pending IRB approval. Uh, but you know, I, I'm a strong believer of it. But even when Several years ago, when we did not do the nerve block, my attending used to tell me, these patients have to go home. You know, you, you keep them for six hours or whatever, but send them home. You know, when they go home and they stay on their own bed, they sleep better and they're happier. I don't know how far it's true, but I don't know. I've, I've seen a lot of people keeping their patients. So it's because of pain control, huh? Yeah, um, that, that, that's why I keep them. Um, I mean, I don't know if my patients are just wimps or maybe I'm just not tough enough on them to, to get them out of the door, but... Mm-hmm. I think if I told them they had to leave the same day, they would just absolutely melt yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the well, thing is, the, Chris, the first well, uh, the first few hours they get they get you know they are in discomfort and pain, so they get a little cranky. Sure. But if they know that they're going to go home the same day, I think you know you sort of put it in their mind, and they have no option, then they go home. Right. I, I think so. I don't I, know. I, think I don't it, know. Yeah, I think it might also be like like you said, like expectation management. Like if they know Correct. that they're going to go home, then Correct. Yeah, Correct. I get it. So here's how we're going to figure out if Chris is too tough on his patients. Why don't you tell us what you give medication-wise pre-procedure, during the procedure, and after? Chris, go. Okay. Um, so what do I give? You know, I'm, I'm always, like, fine-tuning uh, my regimen. And actually, uh, Mary Constantino uh, put a very nice post oh, on really nice. Uh, the SIR yeah, forum. I and I was – yeah, and it was very detailed and very nice, and I thought – I might just rip off hers, um, but but so what I'm what I'm doing right now is um, uh, pre-op, um, uh, you know, this kid Valium, and then you know, interop Nilver said, and then after I embolize one side, I will um, uh, give them uh, 30 milligrams Tordal IV, and then also after I embolize, you know, I always go left side first. I do uh, five cc's of intraarterial lidocaine. I mm-hmm. think that helps. Oh. Um, and then, and then when I go ipsilateral side, after I embolize that side, I start their IV Tylenol and then also do the intraarterial lidocaine. So, so that's my interop stuff. And then afterwards, um, they go to recovery. Uh, we set up a, a, a Dilaudid PCA pretty quickly. And then, um, they're on some breakthrough pain meds, which I don't remember what I put them on. It's kind of part of my order set at this point. And then for antiemetics, I do Zofran. Um, I do a scopolamine patch, which I think mm-hmm. is kind of a helpful, uh, savvy, uh, antiemetic trick. Um, and I just put that on them, uh, regardless, like as soon as they're out of the procedure. And then they get a couple more doses of Toradol. I think I do 15 milligrams, uh, Q8 for a total of three doses, one of which they got intraop and then two, uh, throughout their hospital course. I think, uh, uh, you know, during the procedure, as I almost follow the same thing you guys you do. You know, uh, some versed fentanyl and toradol on either side. Uh, I don't do the entire arterial lidocaine. Maybe I should start doing that. That is, there's, there's a good paper on it from uh, from Canada. 
maybe mm-hmm. that's a good option yeah i like that um but after the procedure no no pca pump man not not luckily i have not required any pca pump uh in the last one one year not a single one wow uh, phenomenal the, yeah uh my patients have walked home between 90 minutes to 3 hours after the procedure all of them wow uh, yeah you know i may i may be lucky maybe a different i don't know with different patient population or what but they they have walked out uh but they do have pain the next day and you know so they sort of they're so happy after the procedure they feel this is going to be the norm but it is because of the block so uh, you know you have to educate okay. them yeah you have to educate because the block lasts for 8 to 12 hours it doesn't last beyond that so the next morning they're going to get up with pain so you know i think we do i still do antibiotics i do ciproflagel uh ibuprofen 800 mg tid or naproxen uh 1000 mg bid uh, one of them either ibuprofen or naproxen uh i think you need uh, you need answers for these you need you know you know you cannot get away with opioids only you need answers uh this Fine. is an inflammatory reaction so you have to get that and then you know percocet and you know percocet uh, if if needed uh and then antiemetic of course uh antiemetic they don't really need unless they take percocet and stuff and uh yeah stool softener i think that's that's something that i've learned that you know i used to miss out a few of them and this to say oh you know what i'm constipated and i'm having pain so stool softener is also important yeah i think that's about it uh yeah so mary constantino list is in front of me she said mm-hmm. 30 minutes before the procedure she gets mm-hmm. oxycontin er 10 mg po regulin 10 mg po she does amlocrim on the wrist during the procedure she uses a nerve block she's funny mm-hmm. fentanyl and versed uh she uses 25 bil- 25 benadryl 60 atorodol more mm-hmm. zofran when she starts to embolize and then she also does intraarterial lidocaine she said uh mm-hmm. 5 cc's on each side and then afterwards she puts the patient on uh oxycontin er 10 mg bid zofran 4 mg iv q6 hours toradol mm-hmm. 30 mg iv q6 hours mm-hmm. and then plenty of oxycodone prn um mm-hmm. so we've got a lot of options uh you know it's going to take some time for all of us to tweak and see what works best um mm-hmm. now just to 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 finish up with one last question uh mm-hmm. what's your your follow up of these patients like are you seeing them in clinic what kind of imaging if anything um yeah you, I, you, I, you can go ahead and start on this one Keith so thanks um yeah i i i do i do try to see them in clinic if they don't end up you know we give them a call and see oh you're doing okay we send them the score of course and you know uh one thing that's important and we don't follow much of it is this ufs ufs ql score have you guys heard of that Uh, I've heard of it, but I'm yeah, it's pretty nice Same. because many of these, uh, many of these patients, is it, it was, it was, uh, I think Dr. Spies uh, sort of wrote it up many years ago. I think it's important because uh, you know patients, a lot of patients start saying that, oh, I thought this would be better. I thought I would feel better, you know. And you see the scores, and you say, hey, these are the scores. See the difference. So you know a lot of. Uh, because you know this is not a surgical procedure right so they're just wondering did this guy do something to me or you know so i think the scores are important and a lot of you know as, as you know in prostates we do the ips score you have to go through we have to go through the you know uh, an objective way of evaluation um yeah so the scores we, we may email the scores they'll get back to us imaging wise i don't know i don't do anything at all unless there's a problem uh, two weeks ago i had a patient who had mild low grade fever on the 14th day after two weeks of antibiotics and i was like oh you know what this is a problem so i got an mri done uh, of course a few of went away and stuff but unless there's a problem no mri mri is expensive 
you know, it, it adds to the cost for a lot of people. And again, we have to move away from being just images to clinicians now. It's time. See, I always, uh, my, my pre-op center gives all my patients a call uh, uh, a day after they go home. So it's really post-procedure day two. And then I usually give my patients a call. Like I'll call and check in with them two or uh, four weeks after the procedure. I'm, I'm moving more towards four weeks. It seems like if you call them at their second week, they just have a lot of things to talk about. And if you oh, call wow. it four weeks, it seems like they are just getting over a hump. And so they'll tell you about how bad things were two weeks ago, but that four week mark seems to be like they're kind of getting over the hump of, of the recovery. Um, and as far as uh, a further follow-up, I always try and get my patients to come back in, but they oftentimes they just don't, mm-hmm. or, you know, they'll, they'll get in touch with me if they have a problem. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm always trying to get them in to come back and see me at clinic and, you know, I, you know, I want to hear about how they're doing and also, you know, let them know that, you know, the procedure went well, um, I, which I do actually when they're in the hospital also, but um, I, I try and get them in and, it, and it's kind of a struggle and I don't fight it too much. If I don't see them, then I just assume no news is good news. There, there are a handful of patients though that I, I do I keep a closer eye on and if they have a pedunculated fibroid or, you know, subserosal or, or, or some mucosal then I, I, the follow-up with them is a little bit tighter. And from imaging-wise, um, you know, I don't order an MRI um, in, unless I'm anticipating a problem or a problem comes up. Um, at Mary Constantino, I heard her give a talk. She's, she's come up a couple times now on this, this podcast. Um, but I heard her give a talk at SIR, and, and she's really aggressive, uh, I think, with, like, treating, like, getting an MRI after and, and having, like, an uh, you know, potentially if like she sees a problem, like she believes in like a clean endometrium. If she thinks that something's going to slough off, she'd rather have like one of the OBGYNs go in and pluck it out early. I'm not that proactive, um, but it it probably would be a pretty good idea. I actually hit mute. Uh, so I think this really <laughs> covers just about everything we needed to touch on. Uh, you know, this is a procedure I think is sort of prototypical of our field and how it's transformed the face of modern medicine. You know, we have a minimally invasive approach to a common condition. Uh, with dramatically decreased morbidity and risk compared to surgical options. Uh, you know, this really epitomizes the without a scalpel initiative. Uh, but, you know, as is typical of our field, there's plenty of variability in, in how we do the procedure and the techniques we use. And it's precisely this type of procedure where Backtable can be a vital resource. Uh, you can connect with your colleagues, learn what they're using and how they're using it, uh, and, and find ways to do this procedure the best that we can. Uh, so for our listeners, download the app, use the website, uh, and reach out to us uh, on Twitter at, at underscore backtable. Let us know what you want to hear and what we can do better. Thanks, everyone, for joining us.